Tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap, 13-year-olds walking home from school together. Zip up and dress down. A ticket for an airplane back to your hometown. And Stax Records goes white. Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. This is Doug Cooper with This Is Vinyl Tap, and I am joined tonight by our humble, extremely humble, and getting humbler all the time, (laughs) producer Jonathan J.M. Rowe. Hello, everybody out in podcast land. And also, we've got the king of power pop. (laughs) Everybody take a drink. (laughs) Uh, It's going to be... Tony? Yeah. It's going to be a drinking night tonight. Well, if everyone's uh, playing along with the power pop game, it will be. We're with Tony, our power pop king. (laughs) Let me me say a warning for the kids out there tonight who might be playing the drinking game. Um, there's a couple of phrases that we uh, recommend that you have a sip every time you hear one. Uh, if I say something correct, which happens quite a few times, <laughs> uh, if um, Jonathan says boohoo, but tonight it's going to be power pop. And uh, I'm just warning you take small drinks tonight because we are working with one of the most power popping bands of all time. Big star, number one record. This album was chosen by Tony. That's probably not a surprise to our regular listeners. Let me just tell you a few things. This is uh, this album was released in August 1972. Ardent Studios from Memphis, Tennessee. It is in the genre power pop, which uh, <laughs> Should tells we? you who uh, who did it. And John Fry's the producer. Tony. Yeah. I'm going to ask a ridiculous question. Yeah. (laughs) Why did you choose this album? Well, I actually have a pretty good answer for that. After uh, three weeks of uh, Cash and Springsteen and Little Feet, uh, I felt we hadn't mentioned Power Pop quite enough or anything that'd really make you boo-hoo. I think think this album covers both of those... uh, both of those deficiencies. It does have some songs that'll make you boohoo. I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we want to, before we delve in, just 
uh, for the sake of argument, briefly talk about what power pop is. We don't have we, to do that. No, we are going to do that because not everybody that's uh, <laughs> listening tonight has heard you define that before. But let's talk about uh, what is power pop and <laughs> why did you pick this album? Those questions in order sound really silly. Well, but... <laughs> let's let's uh, let's talk about the second one first. So I already talked about jokingly that we hadn't talked to mention the word power pop or um, talked about songs that'll make you boohoo in a while. But really, um, I kind of borrow from you a bit on this, Doug, because I don't know where this album came from. I have no idea where this came from. This album has influenced a whole lot of people considering it sold 10,000 copies when it initially was released. I think last week when we did Little Little Feet, you had asked if this was the that was the lowest selling album we'd ever talked about. I think this might beat it. It didn't hold its record for very long. No. no. So that's one reason I picked it. The other reason is while it's a power pop album, it's not your typical power pop album. It's it's got a lot of sadness and melancholy to it around the edges and sometimes right in the center of it. Um, it's not, it's not your bright, happy power pop in terms of the subject matter. And I think that adds some depth to it. Um, again, it's, it influenced a whole slew of bands that I like. I think some bands you guys probably like as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then above all the story around the album is fascinating to me. Um, in, in ways that I, I hope will become apparent to anybody's listening. It's a pretty interesting story. Well, you know, Tony, here, this is Vinyl Tap. We believe every album tells a story. We do. <laughs> we do. So going to your second question about what is power pop, um, the term was first coined by Pete Townsend in 1967 to describe what The Who was doing. I guess he just needed a term for it. And uh, at that time, it was really to describe kind of just a more aggressive sounding pop music because the who was a pop band, but they were, you know, pretty, pretty heavy sounding, but yet. Tuneful. And they had no way to not sound aggressive. Right. Exactly. Yeah. They, they do not have that skill. They do not have that skill. Uh, Subtlety is not their strong. No. Point. Yeah. Just listen to Entwistle's <laughs> bass playing and there's nothing subtle about that. Um, but then it really kind of caught on in the early 70s when you had a, 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 some bands, and in particular, what I consider, and I think a lot of p- people consider the holy trinity of power pop, which would be Badfinger. No matter what you are, I will always be with you. Um, who was on Apple Apple Records, um, kind of the uh, followers, you know, they followed the Beatles in terms who of that. Them? Uh, well, a lot of people produce them. Well, Paul McCartney produced the first album, didn't he? Yeah. Todd, Todd Rundgren, I believe, produced part of one. George Harrison produced another part of one. Anyway, um, and then the other band would be the Raspberries.
which is our American pop band from uh, Cleveland. Cleveland. Yeah. Cleveland Rocks, mm-hmm. for those in Cleveland. Um, and then the third part of that Holy Trinity, I believe, in my opinion, is Big Star. Although the least, at the time, listened to band, commercially successful band of the three, um, it has, uh, when you ta- when you think about early 70s power pop, those three bands are the ones I think everyone talks about. And then as the 70s progressed um, and New Wave started out of punk, there were a lot of bands that in- encompassed what is, I think, what most people consider power pop these days, which is jangly guitars, very birds influenced in a lot of ways. Be- equal part, it's probably what I would say is the DNA is in the Beatles and then it's equal part birds and Beach Boys. Mm-hmm. Lots of harmony, jangly guitars, um, melodic hooks, uh, songs typically three and a half minutes or, or under. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, like I said, hit its commercial peak late 70s or early to mid 80s. People are still making the music, and I love a lot of bands that are still making it, um, but it's never been commercially successful after probably, I'd say, the last giant purely power pop album that was commercially successful was probably girlfriend by matthew sweet I've got a warning for our audience, and I've got a warning for me. <laughs> Despite the fact that many of the younger people in the audience think that we're ancient, none of us are old enough to have heard this band on the radio when they first started. <laughs> and there's a hazard with that, because when we listen to this band, Big Star, We are listening to them after listening to everyone they influenced. Yeah, exactly. So we cannot hear how new and out of sight this thing was because we've heard R.E.M., we've heard uh, Tom Petty, we've heard everybody that has done something that was informed by this music. So when you go out and buy this record, you're going to say, What's the big deal? This doesn't sound that new. Well, just remember that you can't hear it like you could have heard it in 72. Well, and to be honest, uh, the unfortunate thing is even if we had been old enough to listen to it, we probably wouldn't have heard it in 1972 either because 10,000 albums is a pretty low number. (laughs) Um, That's really not the point, Tony. (laughs) The the point is that uh, we're not that old. Uh, yeah. I was trying to just make that point. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So before we go, uh, 
this is kind of it. the reason why it only one of the reasons why it only sold 10,000 copies is because it was put on the Ardent uh, record label. And the Ardent record label was distributed by Stax Records, which we'll talk about in a little while. And but the, the, the issue was Ardent didn't have the capacity to create a whole bunch of albums. This album, when it came out, was the darling of the uh, the critics. That it, The critics recognized it as a, an incredible album. And there were people that were actually trying to find it. But the problem was they couldn't manufacture enough albums to actually get it out uh, to the even the records, uh, the, the radio stations. And so if, if you heard them, it would be really hard to find the album, even if you wanted it. And this was back in the days before downloadable music, et cetera, et cetera. You would have had to put your uh, mono cassette player up to the radio in order to record well, any of this stuff. It, it's funny that you just real quick, Jam, since you mentioned it, I think it's worth reading just briefly some of the things critics had to say. So um, Billboard said that every cut could be a single. Which I happen to agree with. I agree with that. Uh, Rolling Stone said the album was exceptionally good. And Cashbox said this album is one of those red letter days when everything falls together as a total sound. And called it an important record that should go to the top with proper handling. There's the caveat. This (laughs) album was never properly handled. Um, And and we'll go into a little bit uh, as we talk about this. But it was just almost a perfect storm of bad stuff happening <laughs> as this band try to get this out it's yeah. really frustrating to read about this band who's working hard they have publicists working hard they have a new relationship with stacks records and people are looking for actively looking for the album they want to buy it and they can't and i can't imagine anything more frustrating as an artist than to hear that information. And uh, I I don't know that I've heard that before. It's kind of like the last time with Springsteen where you had a you had Columbia Records saying, yeah, 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 don't buy it, don't play that. Well, and it's funny because Columbia plays a part in this because at one point they end up getting in a, a deal. I don't know if they buy Stacks or they get in a deal with Stacks. Get a distribution um, deal with Stacks. And, uh, and the problem was the person who... Uh, negotiated that was Clive Davis who was on ended up being on the outs for some sort of financial stuff. I don't really know the history of that, but Columbia fired him and the new guy came in and didn't want to have anything to do with that distribution deal. They actually pulled uh bit number one records that were on the shelf. They pulled them off the shelf. Now I don't understand that, wow. but they did because they didn't want to deal with uh this this stacks distribution stuff because stacks dealt with uh they they did this thing where they dealt with independent distributors so they didn't have quite the machine that columbia had um but I, again it's like the springsteen thing where you have a you have a label almost actively trying to torpedo the success of the album and the sad thing is that th- that um aspect of it had a significant um impact on several people in this band uh, to their detriment okay um we've gone too far without defining our terms now i'm a young guy and i listen to lil nas x and i don't know all these things y'all are talking about but i happen to know that jonathan jm rowe our extremely humble producer lived in nashville 
I also happen lived to in know Memphis. in Memphis too. I mean, I didn't know you lived in Nashville. That was a mistake. He lived in Memphis, and he's also a producer, a humble one. And tell us about Stax Records because I know who Motown is. <laughs> But who you in the know world who Atlantic is, is? Yeah, yeah. I know who what Atlantic is. I know who Atlantic is. Yeah. Right. But I don't know about Stax. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Stax Records was coming out of the the Memphis area. It was uh, known for more uh, the risque areas of uh, R and B. So they had, and when I say risque, it was, some of it was risque, but also just more the gritty. Motown was kind of slick and groovy and where Atlantic was kind of swamp rocky and uh, Stax was just much more like if you wanted to think about the sweaty bar rooms and uh, with, with cigarettes and, and on that or kind of stuff. Or if you can't help yourself. Or if you can't help yourself. So there's some of the guys that they, they signed were uh, Otis Redding was probably their biggest uh, signee. Uh, the Marquis, another good one. It, it- and, it's like it, it is literally the musical equivalent of what Memphis is like. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And so and it, and then they had their writers, too. Among the writers was Isaac Hayes, who uh, wrote a g- bunch of great songs before he went out on his own. And uh, probably and they had a house band and the house band was uh, uh, Booker T and the MG. Yeah. Outside of probably the uh, the wrecking crew, the the house band uh, that Booker T and the MGs, uh, the, the lineups that they have had in Booker T and the MGs, which isn't any, it isn't quite as extensive as uh, the members of the wrecking crew. They really were just an amazing group of musicians. There was, there was Donald, they had, and they were uh, interracial. So you had Booker T, who was a uh, child prodigy on the organ, but also the trumpet. So he played a lot of the trumpet parts uh, on the on those early Stax recordings. Uh, fine Hammond organ player, and you had Steve Cropper, who uh, was just an amazing guitar player to this day. And you had Donald Duck Dunn, who Donald went on, Duck Dunn. who just went on to play with just about everyone. Uh, from the Blues Brothers to Eric well, Clapton. I was going to say that real quick, Jam. If you don't want to do your homework and actually listen to <laughs> some good stuff, just watch the Blues Brothers because their band is, is basically yeah. Booker. It's Booker T and the MGs without the without Booker T. Without Booker T, and they have Matt Guitar Murphy. Everybody yeah. they go and visit. I mean, it's it's a tribute. It's yeah, a, it's a tribute movie. But mm-hmm. a lot of you, uh, we're talking about a movie made by two guys that were on the real Saturday Night. Uh, live yeah, yeah. and uh, if you don't know what we're talking about 
your parents suck. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, they did Soul Man by Sam and Dave. Another uh, uh, Stax combo. Yeah. And uh, Green Onions by Booker oh, Dandy MG. Yeah. So uh, there, there's a bunch of good. That's There's some great stuff in that Stax vault. But um, Albert King. Yeah. Albert King does uh, one of the kings of the blues guitar. You got all those blind guys and you got yeah. kings. <laughs> well, um, yeah. So uh, what what I find fascinating about that, and, and I'm really happy you went into that, is because the vast majority of the people that were around the scene that was creating this particular album could not have cared less about any of that stuff. <laughs> they they didn't they didn't care that Elvis lived in Memphis. They didn't yeah. care about Elvis, and they did not care about all the rhythm and blues stuff. Count. Coming and you're out talking about Elvis Presley. Yeah, I'm sorry, not Elvis <laughs> Costello. I think these guys would probably care about Elvis Costello had they known about him. Um, but they were Anglophiles, and in particular, big big Beatles guys, big Kinks guys. And it's just fascinating to me that you have a bunch of young guys because it's odd if you think about, you know, Austin, it would be strange for someone growing up in this town to not have some affinity for the type of music that was coming out of this place. Like, as not, they were it's like, yeah, up. not giving a damn about Stevie Ray Vaughan you know? or Willie, Willie, who? Or Willie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. And, yeah. and it would it, it's a weird thing. But none of these guys were impressed by any of this stuff. They didn't yeah. listen to it. They didn't like it. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what, what I mean by where did this come from? Mm-hmm. Um, and then and so the guys in this band, um, I don't know if you want to talk about him, JM or. Well, the guys in the band, so um, Alex Chilton, we, we'll start with him. He was kind of uh, the the main guy. It was At first, it was Chris Bell and Alex Hamill, uh, or Alex, Alex Chilton. Chilton. And Alex Chilton had kind of a, a he was a child. Um, prodigy. Chi- pro- well, I wouldn't say a prodigy, but he was a. Copy surf. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, actually uh, started singing in a band called The Box Tops. And they had a pretty big hit with uh, the letter. Give me a ticket for an aeroplane. Ain't got time to take a fast train. Lonely days are gone. I'm a going home. My baby just wrote me a letter. I don't care how much money I got to spend. Got to get back to my baby again. Lonely how this works. <laughs> And you can't believe this. Alex Chilton, his voice sounds very different than it does with Big Star. It's it's grungy. It's it's deep. It's almost buried in the mix. Did you mention how old he was when he recorded that? And he was 16 years old when he recorded that. And so he had had some modest success. And well, he had some other what, hits. What, 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 and they what, had what, other hits. Wait, 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 wait. At modest success, <laughs> number that, one. that album was number one for was, four weeks, and it was the number two selling single of 1967. Yeah, I did not realize it was that big. A Maybe day. you'd like to compare something you've done to that, Jim. <laughs> we haven't heard about it yet. Let's take some um, time now. Well, here, here's here's just to take a brief aside, Jam. Um, yeah, prodigy is probably not the right word because uh, Alex Chilton was um, so. Chris Chris Bell had a band early early on in '65 called the Jinx, named after the Kinks. Yeah, they were a, it was kind of a bastardization of the Kinks, spelled yeah. J Y N X. 
Um, and in that band were, was him on on guitar, a guy named Steve Rhea, who will be part of the big star story through various music collaborations with with Chris Bell and other things. He also worked for promotions and marketing for art. And, and then a bassist by the name of Bill Cunningham, who was also the bassist for the Box Tops. And uh, they were a fairly popular band. And Alex and they, and these guys, Chris Bell and Andy Hummel, who we'll talk about later, they went to a private school. They ended up going to private school. And so this band, the Jinx, would play a lot of private school dances. They also played, uh, this is a weird thing for me to think about, but there was a teen club scene after the Beatles started. And in Memphis, there were all these teen clubs that popped up where these young kids would go and play. And the Jinx were pretty popular on that circuit. Um, they ended up... Uh, Alex Chilton ended up hanging out in that scene and he would get up and sing with them from time to time, but he was fairly stage shy. He didn't, he didn't yeah. like doing it, but they would convince him to do it. And obviously they saw something in his voice that, that Chris Bell at least wanted to do. Um, they, the jinx were, I don't know if, if you want to talk about this jam, but they were considered, they were going to be on this Memphis TV show. And, uh, ahead. Yeah, but I, I do know about that. So they, they'd been asked to be on this Memphis TV show called Talent Party, which is probably just a local American bandstand ripoff. But they needed a four song demo. So they went in and recorded four songs. They recorded Little Girl by them, who was Van, Van Morrison's Morrison. band. Yeah. Just Like Me by Paul Revere and the Raiders. And My Baby's Gone, which was a Moody Blues song uh, that was written by Denny Lane and Mike Pender. And I, I'll Go Crazy by James Brown. Those are the first four songs he did. Huh. Alex Chilton was supposed to sing on that demo, and he didn't show up. Uh, the, the legend, <laughs> and we'll talk about this a lot. There's a lot yeah. of legend and myth about this band, and it's difficult to find what the real, the actual truth is. We'll get as yeah. close as we can to it. Yeah. But the legend is that he was out drinking with his girlfriend at a cemetery that night, oh. and he didn't show up. He, he got cold feet, didn't show. Yeah, But um, so they ended up, doing that without him. Um, but as, as you dis discussed, we shouldn't feel too bad for Alex Chilton because he <laughs> ended up being a, the singer for a band that had the number two single yeah. in, in 1967, the summer of love. Think yeah, about that. It really, that yeah. was a lot. That's some serious competition. <laughs> yeah. It's not like now. Anyway, you know what? I didn't mean to say something do, hateful about you know, the current day. And this was funny. It knocked Ode to Billy Joe off the top spot <laughs> and was knocked off by light my fire. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. Well, I'll do that. They actually, the box tops toured, toured or played a show with the doors and uh, they actually played a show in Fort worth in 1967. Is that right? With the doors. Did not know that. Um, I wasn't there. Um, <laughs> but, uh, how about, how do y'all feel about talking about big star tonight? Well, no, I, I think that's good, but I think we got to talk a little bit about the history to yeah. how they got to that point um, and how Alex Chilton ended up leaving the box tops and getting involved with these guys. Cause I think that's, it's at least interesting to me and kind of important to the story. It's all about him. It is all <laughs> about me. It is. Uh, you know, we talked briefly about Arden and it's important to talk a little bit more about that studio. So the guy, one of the guys who founded it was this guy named John Fry. Yeah. He started it in his garage. Um, and it is a, uh, this was 1972. So I guess they started recording there in the, uh, like 1971. So just to kind of put it in perspective, this was a 16 track studio and that was very unusual in those days. So the fact that he put together a 16 track studio uh, was 
and why it didn't just make people from all over the world try to record there is beyond me. Well, what what they what they did was before before we get to seventy two, um, he he would let these there were a lot all these garage bands around Memphis, and he'd yeah. have these kids come into the studio, and the, he had a, he actually had an engineering class that he taught to teach these guys so that these kids would know what they were doing in the studio, and some of them ended up working there. Chris Bell from Big Star was one of these guys, and Andy Hummel was another guy, yeah, and they would do engineering work and and other things for the label. Um, and then he would give them the keys to the studio and allow them to go into the studio. They would earn hours and they could go into the studio after hours. Right. And, uh, yeah. And he was, uh, he, he was very supportive of that scene. He was very, uh, very technically minded. And if you ever saw him interviewed, he was, he's also one of the nicest guys. He, he died yeah, recently, but a talented producer who's also a nice guy. Oh, he was a super nice guy, very yeah. supportive. But what what ends up happening, this weird sort of circumstance where Alex Chilton gets sort of burnt out. He there's this really interesting interview. It, it might have been um it might have been from that there's a, a a pretty decent documentary about Big Star um out. I believe it's called No One Can Hurt Me. I think that's what it's called. Yeah. And he's I think it's in that where he says, you know, I, I everyone says it must have been great to be going around and seeing this stuff because I, all I could do was see it. I wasn't participating in any of it. Mm-hmm. So I think he got a little burned out about that. He ends up uh, going home from uh, the, leaving the box tops, going home. And then he moves to New York and becomes part of the folky scene up there. The, yeah, the same he, scene that... They talked about several times. Yeah. And he wanted to become a better guitar player. That's a, that, He just honed his guitar playing yeah, ability. Yeah, well, and, and, and so the the Jinx, you know, they go, they record this stuff. Um, uh, they uh, Jody Stevens, who's the drummer from Big Star, ends up coming coming up with with the band uh, or, or getting in with the, those groups of guys. When they end up, uh, the Jinx kind of break up. They fizzle out, and, and Chris Bell starts a, another band called Ice Water, and that's when Andy Hummel comes on, who's the bassist, and that's when Jody Stevens comes on, who was friends with Andy Hummel. And they cut some songs and they decide to go to New York to shop the tunes around. They actually end up getting in with Electra, and Electra says, you guys are just the Beatles rip off and brushes them <laughs> off. But while they're up there, they reconnected with Alex Chilton. And Chris Bell really pushed him and said, man, if you ever come back, I would be really interested in doing some stuff with you. Um, and uh, and so Alex Chilton said he would. Now, I don't know if Chris Bell was just naive and believed him. I mean, it ended up being true, but who knows if he would do it or not. Yeah. So Chris Bell goes back to Memphis. He goes back into Arden. He starts working on this project called Rock City, which has a couple of songs that end up on number one record. But he's doing all this stuff, trying to prepare for Alex Chilton to come back. At the same time, Icewater's still playing live around. They're still doing things. Alex Chilton happens to see Icewater live, likes what he sees. Um, and then he comes by ardent during a rock city recording session, something clicks, they start working together. Alex Chilton pulls out, uh, the song called watch the sunrise and starts playing it. And the rest is kind of history. All the pieces that were going to end up being big star are kind of in place. And as JM said, this album took a very long time because of the way, I mean, you think about it, it's, it's pretty amazing that a band, a, a band just starting out had this kind of access to this kind of studio. One of the right. things we didn't mention was that Ardent was the very first studio in the U.S. to to have a Mellotron. 
which is something we've talked about a lot. Yeah, on the podcast. And, um, and I think there's fewer there's fewer albums where we didn't talk about the Mellotron <laughs> than that we did talk about. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. pretty pretty amazing that we got we squeezed the Mellotron into a Springsteen album. <laughs> we didn't have to squeeze. Uh, that's what's so fascinating to me is. Um, I had only a, the vaguest notion of, of Mellotron before we started this. And now I can't, we can't look at anything without Mellotrons <laughs> popping up. Well, and now we got the Ardentron or what, the, what the well, hell is no, it called? Yeah, the Ardentron. So John Fry, the guy who ran Ardent, was, he was a kind of a, a, a geek, an audio geek. And his studio, as JM said, was state of the art. And they had this thing called an Artitron, which I've been trying to find out more about. It's difficult, but it, it, what I can gather, it was a precursor to the Mellotron. And I if think if you have information about the Artitron, please contact yeah, us. Yeah, the, the precursor, another precursor was the the Chamberlain, which okay. uh, it's played on the Johnny Cash album uh, by Tom Petty, by the way. Uh, but um, yeah, the uh, an interesting side note about the Mellotron that was used for the recording of Number One record. Um, it was not used again until the mid '80s by a band by the name of REM when they went to Ardent to record Green, yeah. a band by the way heavily influenced by Big Star. Yeah, um, but it's just interesting. They have this Mellotron there, and no one's using it until REM saunters in and says, "Oh, we'll do that. We'll play with that <laughs> thing." Um, so yeah, Ardent Studios was kind of uh, forgotten in for a long time there was a guy by the name of jim dickinson who oh, yeah. started recording over there so if you ever read a book uh <laughs> called it came from in memphis jim dickinson is all over that and uh, he helped a, a, another band we've talked about before on this podcast the replacements who actually recorded an album there uh in the 80s and actually named one of their songs that they recorded there alex chilton Aww. so <laughs> well and uh yeah, and and the other thing that Arden did, so not, not that the whole stacks thing was out of the blue, um, when they were building, they ended up building this new studio, and when they did it, they got the same board that Stax was getting installed, and so Stax started sending all of their overflow business to Ardent. So instead of doing these kind of local garage bands that they had been doing, they started recording some pretty big names that mm -hmm. Stax just didn't have the time studio time for. Mm -hmm. And these guys like Chris Bell and Andy Hummel were engineering these albums for them. Uh, Chris Bell ends, you know, uh, just, uh, just a brief uh, point of with that. Chris Bell uh, did an album, recorded an album with the Memphis horns and then because of that, they ended up playing on the first song on number one record because he had a relationship with them and he recorded that al an album for them at oh, Ardent. I was wondering where the horns came from. Yeah. And, and that's just a reminder to our audience that it's all about relationships. <laughs> I, I want to say one of the things anybody who's listened to this podcast, and I hope lots of you, this is not your first time, but if it is welcome, know about me is I tend to choose sides. And uh, like I did that with when Uncle Tupelo broke up, I picked the Jay Farrar side. And when we had that album war, I was firmly ensconced in that. I I am a firm believer in you're either a Beatles fan or a Stones fan, and you shouldn't intermix it too. I know tons of people say I listen to both. I think you're wrong, but that's okay. Um, uh, <laughs> he sounds a, like me. I'm a Beatles fan, by the way. Um, and and I did that with this this album too. And I when I first heard it, and this was here's a little if anyone's interesting brief aside i bought this album 
early on because it was something that I was supposed to own as a power pop fan and I didn't get it immediately. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't understand what the big deal was this. And I put it away and I pulled it out two years later because I stupidly agreed. A friend of mine talked me into doing this um, blog where I would listen to all of my CDs and rate and talk about them and rate them. I got about a three weeks into it before I said, I'm done with this. But <laughs> One of the things I did listen to was this album and I was like, why, how did I not understand this? It just, I didn't get how I, how I missed, missed how great this album was. But anyway, I was firmly ensconced in the Chris Bell camp. And I think there's been a movement to give him more credit almost to the detriment of Alex Chilton. Early on, Alex Chilton got all the credit. Now I think there's a a movement to try to give Chris Bell all the credit and see Alex Chilton as a hanger on. That does a disservice to both of them. The reason this album is so compelling is because both of them bring such interesting points of view to the music they're making. And it, and it works really, really well when the two of them together case in point, uh, none of the big star albums after Chris Bell left are as good as this one. There's some great stuff on Radio City, but it's not as good as this album. And nothing Chris Bell did outside of maybe a collaboration with uh, with uh, Chilton. Chilton is as good as anything on the album. That's not to say they're not good. Radio City is a great album, and I Am the Cosmos is a great album. They're just not this album. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful point. Um, <laughs> and we'll probably make an after-school special about this. About teaming up with buddies to make something better. Uh, Jam, if you'll make sure you get the sad piano music ready for that. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> You're right. I mean, all you got to do is listen to these two guys sing at the same time. And a lot of what Tony just said is going to make sense. Well, yeah. And, and uh, the other thing is it, there's something relieving about switching from one voice to another voice. And switching up the sound, switching up the well, yeah. And and what's what's I think um, apparent um, from people who listen to this for the first time before they dig into it is the voices are similar enough to where if you didn't do a deep dive or know, you might think it's the same person singing throughout it, with the exception of the India song. I think I think that's <laughs> that's different enough that's to where obvious. you can tell. Yeah, it's obvious. No but the one. the other thing I want to talk about before we get into the songs is. Um, you know, Chris Bell was a huge Beatles fan to the point where he wanted, I mean, he, he wanted the album to be glossy like the Beatles albums where it was all, it was, there was outside of the music and the, and the amount of effort he put into making this album. Well, even way, the way the, the songs were credited. That's right? what, that's what I was going to talk about. So he wanted him credited as Bell Chilton mm-hmm. because they were Lennon and McCartney. And there was a song, there's a song on this album that we'll talk about later that was not written that Alex Chilton had nothing to do with. And when Chris Bell reached out to the author and said, I want this to say uh, Bell Chilton, the guy said, well, too bad. Don't use it if you want to say it. I'm not going to credit. So it's one of the few songs on this other than the Andy Hummel song that is not credited to Bell Chilton. The other thing that I think is really kind of cool about this is if you listen to this album, it's really bright. I mean, it is super, super bright. And that was on purpose. This album is high end. It's as high end as it can get. Yeah. And when they were mastering it, 
they were having issues with that because there's this thing called a de-esser that takes the sibilance out of and the high ends out of stuff. And on the first side of the album, it would it kept removing all the high. It would just kick in and remove all the high ends. They had to remaster that first side of the album five or six times because of that. <laughs> and there was this thing they had to. There was this uh, helium um, infused arm that they had to use to cut the album that they had to crank up all the way to make sure that it did. That the, anyway, they had to work work their magic. You know, that to try was to invented get, by a bass player, was it? <laughs> yep. And then, uh, and then the other funny thing was, whenever they would cut an acetate, they would uh, the guys would carve something into into the version of it. Yeah. And one time, either Andy Hummel or Chris Bell carved something that they thought that was funny and filthy at the same time, but they thought no one would see it. And a and a record comp a female record company employee saw it, and they got in huge trouble for it. <laughs> That's so. good to know that you could get in trouble for something like that back in the old days. Yeah. When I thought you got away with that. Yeah. Well, um, now that we're into details like acetate uh, carving, <laughs> would it be possible to go on to this wonderful album and we can talk about the first track, Feel by Bell? Feels like I'm dying, getting very near the end. It's just a, an amazing way to, to to start the song, but but it does and start the album. It does um, reinforce that kind of melancholia hanging around the edges. This is not your typical, you yeah. know, girl meets boy power pop. There, I mean, you know, I know we talked before oh, we so started ang- yeah. about spread. about the lyrics not really popping at you to where you can remember it, but when you're listening to it, you actually pay attention. You realize, yeah, yeah angst ridden is a perfect well, term for this. We're not dealing with a, a very healthy person, probably. No, we're not. <laughs> um, but yeah, I agree with Jam. This is a really great way to start a record off. It's a pretty solid rocker. I, I would say. Um, I love the old rock and roll vibe. Uh, if anyone wanted to tap Jeff Lynn on the shoulder and say, this is how you incorporate fifties <laughs> rock and roll into a song. They might yeah. want to do that. Um, as I mentioned, this is the song that has the Memphis horns on it. This song right here. Yeah. And um, they're great. I mean, is it, they're, they're almost, they're very subtle the way that they come in and, yeah. and you've got that really neat world Ritzer, uh, I, I think it's being played by the, uh, the sound engineer who's, no. On the album. And, and and the thing is, John. I think John Fry is listed either as an engineer or producer on this, but he has said in multiple, multiple interviews that this album is all Chris Bell's doing. Yeah, yeah. And, Who and, was a very co- accomplished uh, uh, engineer. But he was studio. also obsessive to the point where it... Same thing. <laughs> there you go. Um, this like, song... Like uh, Jeff Lynn, the guy yes. you have no... Uh, you have no love for. <laughs> I'm about to call and tell him he needs to go get advice from these guys who sold ten thousand albums. He does. <laughs> well, you know they 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 broke up before disco was big, so I get it. Um, uh, this the, listen but the, to the hate. <laughs> the other thing this uh, this song does is kind of set the standard. So anything that is a bit of a screecher is going to be sung by Chris Bell, regardless of who wrote it. Yeah. Who does his voice remind you of? Well, everyone says. Um, it sounds like Robert Plant. I don't think it sounds like I Robert Plant. I don't think Plant. so either. That's not who I was thinking of. Something, uh, everything about this band reminds me of um, 
bad finger. Well, and I, I, I know that's obvious as no, hell. No, no, no. I don't know who sounds like whom, actually. I, I don't think, well, they, they said, they've said they weren't aware of bad finger. Or, well, I, I would believe that neither one knew about the other yeah, one. Or, or the raspberries, that they were just doing their own thing. I think later on, um, in particular, I, I absolutely agree with you when it, when it comes to, um, the song, uh, don't lie to me. That sounds so much like a bad finger song to me. It's scary. <laughs> well, and, and does anybody else come in mind? I, I hear cheap trick. Yeah. Well, and I, and, and, and here's the thing. Cheap trick was likely aware of this band. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I think. I, well, I'll, that's going to become very apparent later. In the, oh yeah, in yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. That yeah, good point. That's yeah. a little foreshadowing. I, I love, <laughs> I love cheap, cheap trick, but I, I think I learned about one of their cheap tricks. <laughs> um, now, I don't know that. To me, this seems like the biggest song. The next song seems like the biggest song on the album, and I may be completely wrong, but uh, the ballad of El Gudo. This one gets more um, attention than the others, in my mind. I don't know. No, you're absolutely right. This song has probably been covered by more people than anybody else. Maybe second would be 13. But but I think this is really... If people were going to talk about a song on this album, this is the one they talk about ha- having the heart of the album. Um, and this is one of the songs that Chilton wrote in New York when he was a folky. <laughs> I can see that, but my... It's a... You... I'm going to say it. If you want to boohoo, this is the song to boohoo to. It is a fantastic <laughs> y'all, song. Y'all drink up. Well, and and Chilton has said that the little lick at the end of each verse was based on a Doc Watson lick. Oh, really? Yeah. I guess Doc Watson was fairly prevalent in the New York folky scene sure, at the time. Yeah, all the folky. And sort of to be a, like, he was going to play it as a folk song. But uh, I think it becomes something really pretty spectacular under Chris Bell's production. I'm glad that they didn't make us up, folks. I mean, Andy Andy Hummel said with Chris Bell being involved in the song, this song is, I mean, he described it as glorious, which I think is a really great word to describe the song. Yeah, it really is. It's it's very, and um, you can kind of tell that if, that there is a little bit more production in it that I think that Alex Chilton really likes but it's still just well the way that's done is just unbelievable it's one it's one of those that you want to back up and hear again yeah the, the what what's um pretty remarkable about this song and some of the other songs is the way they're able to um use backing vocals uh it's almost yeah. like another instrument um they're so lush so yeah, yeah. vital to the way the song sounds yeah um yeah it just it's no, it almost sounds like a like a choir in the back. It does, yeah. Up next, we have a bell tune in the streets. Well. Uh, 
the the actual impetus of this song, or at least the guitar riff, was something Alex Chilton wrote. And he said uh, it was ripped off when he was in New York. Some guy was playing him. This is funny. Old blind Willie McTell albums. <laughs> and uh, and so Alex heard some of this and he liked it. And he said, you know what? I'm going to rock up one of these blues riffs. And so that's what really? essentially that. That yeah, that uh, you know the beginning. He of pulled the Led Zeppelin. He yeah, pulled the Led Zeppelin. Did, yeah, this is a prime example of Alex Chilton being able to add a little roughness to a song that might not otherwise have had that had it just yeah. been Chris Bell. He had that because you know he unlike the other guys, he did like all the Memphis soul stuff. Yeah, and so he's able to to give that a little bit of a kick. Um, the uh, the song was the B side to the first single, and it was re recorded for the B side, not remixed. They re recorded it for oh, the B side. Really? Yeah. And uh, and it and the, I think this version's badass. Well, the the um the it's bad bottom. This is a family program. <laughs> the vocals on the album version are better than the single version, but I like the guitar lead in the single version better. It seems a little oh, brighter really? to me. Yeah, I the, the, look. I like great. the. I mean, I'm a Strat um, guy. You can totally tell that's a Strat guitar playing. But um, JM was going to mention something interesting about this song. If yeah. nobody knows, yeah. By now, if you haven't heard it and you don't recognize it, this was covered by Cheap Trick. And it was done uh, as the opening to that '70s show. So, which which is so funny because none of those kids in Wisconsin would have ever heard Big Star. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, yeah. Alex Alex Chilton later said that ironically, this song. You know, nobody heard the song before, but every time that song got played, he got seventy bucks for it. Chilton loved the song. He said, next to my babies beside me, or when my babies beside me, this was the best thing he ever wrote. Well, he knocked it out of the park on this one. I think it's a fine song. Yeah. All right. We have a sentimental favorite next. <laughs> I don't know any other song like this. This song is so un- disarmed and honest, and it's, it's, it's perfect for a 13-year-old. Oh, yeah. This song's called 13. Won't you let me walk you home from school? Won't you let me meet you at the pool? Maybe Friday I can get tickets for the dance and I'll take you Ooh. yeah uh, it's a wonderful tune and I'm just I'm just shocked anybody uh, would have the guts to put this out because it would be so easy to make fun of this. It's, but absolutely, you don't want to. All you want to do is say, "Man, I know where you're coming from." It's an achingly beautiful song. That's the and only so thing. simple and so simple. But yeah. it, but it fits because it's it's told from the point of view of a 13 year old and 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 this feeling that you're going yeah. through as kids got a thing for this. It's I so guess pure. it is pure. Um, this was also <laughs> written. Rock and roll. This was also yeah. written when Chilton was in New York. Um, 
I, 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 Chilton hated his performance of this, which I don't get. I don't get that. I don't one. get how you. I will say, uh, great. I will say, and this is just for everybody who knows, this is tongue firmly planted in cheek. I do have a song, a, a verse that correction that would make this song better is if you replace the, the, the line, uh, tell your dad, uh, tell, your, tell him what I said about paint it black. Just change it for tell him said what I tell him what I said about get back. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really understand why that line, the, 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 if that's the only line in this whole song that or actually in, in the big star, ooh, that, that, uh, sticks in my craw a little bit. Really? But, yeah. I, I get what he's saying. This is a kid who thinks that he's heard this song by the stones and it's, um, and it means something to him and it means he's hopes it means something to this girl. And right. he's got, he's got a, he's got a roadblock to his, his future love, which is her dad doesn't like him. So he's like, Hey, your dad's probably a Stones fan. Tell him what I said about paint it black. Oh, I, thought, I don't I, think that at all. I, I thought think the exact opposite. <laughs> Man, you don't understand. We want everything painted black because no. of the bourgeois people like you. I don't think that's what he means. No, at all. I think Tony's onto something now. Now that I'm listening, now that I'm thinking. Think back about on the if song. you're a 13 year old kid and your and the, your girlfriend's dad doesn't like you and you're trying to get in good with him. You're like, hey. Yeah. You know, man, oh, but this is this is one of my that never occurred to me. Man. <laughs> well, well, it didn't occur to me till just now. But the guitar playing on this song is just heartbreaking. Everything about this song is heartbreaking. Yeah. This song is beautiful. And, uh, and, just, and 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 I don't know. It would be if you played this for somebody and they said, uh, I don't get it. I I'd, I'd just walk <laughs> away and discuss. I mean, this, you don't want the, you don't want that person in your life. Tony. No, I don't. <laughs> They're, uh, anyway, James, this make you boohoo. You got pretty close. Anyway, this, this me in the right song. And, 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 and I bet a whole bunch of people, I don't know about covered this song. There's a lot of people that covered this song. Um, Unlike the Ballad of El Gitto, which there are some fairly really good renditions of, I have not heard a rendition of Thirteen that makes me think, "Boy, that's a good version of it." Yeah, yeah, I don't know. And it may be can... because Chilton might have hated his performance on this, but it sounds so um, raw, genuine, and genuine, believable, and, and believable, and just yeah. I I don't know how he could listen back to it and say this was no good because this it's. Yeah, and it's one of those instances where the voice—if you like somebody on The Voice or uh, Americans Got Talent or whatever those shows are—if somebody tried to do that song on one of those shows, it just wouldn't. You, have you, you can't do the song with the powerful voice. You can't good do the song with it's, powerful it's, voice. Uh, it reminds me of what Audrey Hepburn did with Moon River. Yeah. You need to be I, vulnerable. It, if 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 Audrey Hepburn sings Moon River, I will listen to it nonstop for a week. And but you get you get Andy Williams or somebody with the with the pipes out there, I lose interest in the song because it's not an anthem. It's it's, not. it's a it's a gentle, uh, very um, uh, helpless. Yeah, naive, that, per, perfect, naive, helpless, vulnerable, all of those things, and you you strip this song of that, and it loses it, it, all yeah, of its power. Disaster! You can't open the NFL uh, Monday Night Football with this song. <laughs> <laughs> that was too much. All right, <laughs> but you can't. Um, anyway, next up is "Don't Lie to Me." Don't 
This so, is a bell tune. I, I, I find this I find this first side really interesting because it's rocker ballad, rocker ballad, rocker ballad. Well, I wanted to say something about uh I don't know who laid this out, but yeah. they did a great job. I it keeps me engaged because it never gives you too much of one thing. Yeah. Um, it's it's yeah. like uh, when what is that the call where they have all the dishes and they oh well, you can have a little bit of this a little bit and they bring in all Tapas. these dishes what tapas no where the snobs do with like an eighteen course oh, you know, okay. here's your little wine thing and it's it, that's what it's like a little bit of this a little bit of that and you never get okay I'm done you're never done D- Doug's never had wine without X's on the bottle <laughs> <laughs> or MD <laughs> well. This, a great- this, like I said earlier, this song sounds to me like a bad finger song in a way that none, not really. Admit, yeah, I can know. see that. I can see um, that. And um, uh, the guitar work sounds like bad finger. This yeah. was uh, this is kind of funny. This was released. Uh, there was a second single actually released on this album. This was um, the the second A side with "Watch the Sunrise" as the B side. But you, you kind of knew things were going to be problematic because what happened when you put it on the turntable was 13 plays instead. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a disaster. But um, Andy Hummel wasn't around when they recorded the song. So uh, Chris Bell plays bass on it. And, oh, really? I didn't yeah. know that. And here's really again great. just pointing out how easy bass is. If you, uh, <laughs> if you listen closely to the bridge... There is in the mix. There is a theremin. You can hear it if you listen to it. And two of their friends bring these um, Norton seven fifty Commando motorcycles in, and you can hear them. Okay, revving. I can hear that. You yeah. can hear, but if you listen to that same part, you can hear the the weird theremin noise <laughs> really? too. Yeah, it was just to try to create chaos. And there's a point where they were at some point they were singing two different lines, and someone just said, "Just sing them at the same time." Yeah, and that's um, great. and then at one point, I think Alex Shelton said complained that his his voice was too raw and he couldn't do it anymore. And Chris Bell's like, "That's." what we want you know um but uh again, yeah and there's there, there, the cacophony in it is actually uh something that i've noticed just the last week that i was listening to this when i've never noticed that before i think that's what keeps me engaged in this song it's a simple song it's what yeah. Yeah, three lines um in it but yeah. it's uh it's fun it's a fun song it's, and it it's definitely, a workout it's a it's, workout. it is a, it is a workout um and it would be fun had this band uh, stuck around, it'd be fun to see them play this live. Yeah. Well, and and that brings us to uh, number six, the last song on side one. And th- for me, this is the most disappointing song on the album. And I mean that in a very specific way. It, it disappoints me because he says, I want to go to India. And then he says, I want to live. And somewhere inside my evil heart, I wanted him to say, in a teepee. So bad. 
Because I thought that would be so funny. Jesus. Okay, people. You know, you know how to uh, reach uh, Doug Cooper, right? I thought that would be so clever. He said that. And then he doesn't. And then I spend most of the record going, why didn't he? Do? He could have just well, said that. This song is lyrically funny in the sense that it's it seems like such a privileged point of view about India. And it's a weird well, concept of what India and you know, is about. These guys, it, yeah, you, you mentioned they were they met at a private school. Chris Bell's dad, I think, was a pretty prominent doctor. In, yeah, they, in they were well, they, they were they well were not, off guys. Yeah, they were yeah. well off guys. I think um, I really do think this was when I hear this and knowing that, I, I almost think like they're thinking of themselves as British aristocracy. Like what well, would they have done if they were over there? And the thing we didn't say is this song was written and sung by the bass player, Andy Hummel. Yeah. Um, he wanted to, he was thinking about because he had studio time, just like Chris Bell did about making this a solo thing. And Alex Chilton talked him into putting it on the album. He thought it was good enough to be on the album. Um, and he plays the Mellotron. So I was wondering who played the Mellotron. Yeah. A Andy Hummel plays the Mellotron. And there's a it. lot of good Mellotron work on this. It's, it's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. Um, it, I do think it's um, the whole side, as we talked about, is a little bit schizophrenic in a good way. But this is this seems to me a little bit strange. It's not a, the most powerful song to end a side on. I, and this this goes to my ignorance of India. Is there a is there a forest you can live in a big white house in? Um I can't speak to the big white I guess, house. I guess but a lot a forest, of it is forest. because yeah, there's tigers and stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. tigers and stuff, Tony. <laughs> I'm not the one who said teepee, Doug. Don't give me any crap. <laughs> teepee, um, anyway, I just I'm not the dumbass that came to the new world and started calling everybody Indians. That's no, not that, that's that, not on me. That would be Columbus. <laughs> yeah. I could have done a lot better. All right. We're flipping her over. And that means the next song is a... I don't need to think Cause when my baby's beside me I don't worry when my baby's beside me All I know When my baby's beside me I don't worry when my baby's beside me All I know Hit. But nothing on this album's a hit, well, even though was, everything it, on this album sounds like it could it have was, been a it hit. It was a single. I, I want to say this about the second side of this album. This is where I have a hard time finding a... Like, I, I hear this song, and I go, this is my favorite song. And then the next one comes, and I was like, damn it, this is my favorite song. Yep. And that does it goes all the way through Watch the Sunrise. It's like, And I usually end up with Watch the Sunrise being my favorite, because it's the last one I heard until I put the... I put, um, when my baby's beside me on again, and I was like, "Damn it, that's my favorite song." Yeah. This this second side when we first did our when we did our very first podcast, which hopefully will never see the light of day. Um, <laughs> we did it on "Girlfriend" by Matthew Sweet, which oddly enough, our first was one was a power heavily pop, a power heavily, pop album, heavily influenced, it was heavily by influenced, this influenced by this, and it was a power pop album. But um, I said at the time we did that that the first side of "Girlfriend" is one of my favorite. Like, I think it's one of the greatest single sides of an album ever. Mm -hmm. This second side of this album for me is pretty darn close to it. It doesn't have, like, it doesn't have songs like the Ballad of Lagoto or 13 on it that just, like, oh, or, or just grab you. But just in terms of um, its consistency and the way these songs meld together, it's, it's almost a perfect side to an album, in my opinion. 
Well, I, yeah, I, I I love this. I love the second side. I love the way the it does flow. In my opinion, it flows better than the the first side, and I really like how the the last three songs kind of blend into each other. But uh, we're talking about the first song. Well, we're, you you got the pattern on this out. This the second side is similar to the first side. Clinton Bell, Clinton Bell, Clinton Bell, and Clinton. Chilton. Uh, Chilton. Chilton. Clinton was a president, um, <laughs> for those of younger folks out well, there. Well, uh, here's... Um, Stay away from them. So are we, we going to dig into the song, or are we... Yeah, it's so like, baby. When my baby's beside me. Yeah. Um, Chilton. Not Clinton. <laughs> I love the way that the the guitar just stutters and stops. Uh, uh, it's... It's again. You got that nice Stratocaster sound. Well, and I don't know if anybody makes a. It's hard that you can just recognize that he's playing a Stratocaster. Can you tell who's playing uh, guitar on this album? I actually can't tell who's. Playing I think I think this is uh, on this song. It's probably Chilton. Here's what's interesting about this, and you can hear it when I'm going to say this. You, I, I hope you guys are going to go. Oh yeah. So the guitar is played through a Hammond B3 organ speaker. So which wah, 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 which wah, is the wah. exact same setup that the guitar solo in Badge was played in. Oh, really? And when you listen to Badge, that guitar solo that kicks in after, you know, when yeah. and then listen to the, the guitar in this song, you can absolutely tell it's the same thing. <laughs> Um, almost exclusively listen to Carly B. Um, <laughs> oh, can I'm you sorry. tell me about this Badge thing? Badge is a song by the band Cream, uh, one of the first power trios, Clapton's band. Um, so I can tell you, the, the Leslie Cabin, it's a speaker that's used with the Hammond organ. and the, There's a, a the thing in the speaker the, that spins. There, yeah, the, the, <laughs> and it makes it go wobble, wobble, wobble. Yeah. yeah, so the speaker spins, and you can control how fast it spins and how by the faster it spins the higher the the the, the more pure the sound is the lower it the, the slower it spins you actually control how fast that bell is spinning at the top of it and was and, that my fault we started talking about that yeah but but so um i think at least two of us in this room maybe three but at least two of us think that that's the best cream song badge i think it's the best cream um, song but but i i, I, I do too and I, I just don't i don't <laughs> see a lot of competition either well, um and but if i hate li- to say something nasty about three great musicians but if you I would listen- like to say something about that what 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 um just watch uh blues brothers again right. and i think doesn't ray charles play uh hammond. He plays a hammond yeah. doesn't they have that thing doing it yeah so anyway you but don't if, need to listen to us anymore. Just go watch that. Album. Go watch the Blues Brothers. You got it. But if you seriously, if you listen, and uh, I'm assuming Jam will pop in that guitar part on Badge. It is you're you're, you're going to go. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. How about uh, my life is right.
So this is the song that was credited to Bell and Tom Eubanks. This is a song where Tom Eubanks was asked to relinquish writing credit so that it could be a Bell Chilton number. And uh, Bell said, uh, Chris Bell said, well, you'll still get the you'll get the royalties. And he's like, points. Yeah, I didn't write it for that. He's like, well, we want to do that. He's like, well, find another song because you're not going to do that. And they finally relinquished and put his name on it. Um, And he got like five bucks. uh, It. It's such a great song. It's a good song. Um, it, it's it's funny because later in his life, uh, Chris Bell became very religious, and it's hard. And again, you know, Doug mentioned listening to things with hindsight after you've already heard stuff. Knowing that and hearing this song, it's difficult not to see sort of a religious undertones to this particular song. I don't I know if there think are. It's heavy not, though. But, I, I thought that. Overtones were heavy. Um, well, I, I I don't know if he was very religious at this point in his life, but it definitely feels that way. So this is one of the songs that was written for the uh, Rock City stuff. Um, you know, the, Chilton said that um, when he joined the band, there was a lot of stuff that was already pretty much a foundational thing, and it might not have been quite what he wanted to do. He was more into the soul stuff, but he, he went along with it because he saw the merit and he saw some value in it. Um, I think this is one of the songs that was, like I said, pretty well, already well realized. And then Chilton did, you know, he added some flourishes to it, which, you know, it's funny when we were talking about his, uh, the McCartney-Lennon comparison, essentially, you know, that's how they wrote. They came to this, they came to the other person with the song almost fully realized. The other person added a couple of things and then they credited to Lennon McCartney. So there's a lot of similarities between that and this stuff. And, um, and you know, that... I think that method of songwriting is really good, and uh, every songwriter gets stalled out. Oh, yeah. And then you take it to your buddy, and Lennon and McCartney, everybody gives them credit for it. I'm sure everybody else. I, I think Pink Floyd did that, too, probably. But um, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think there's a lot of comparisons between... Uh, the other thing is the two different types of personality Lennon and McCartney had. Neither one of them would have been. McCartney would have sounded like um, Neil Sedaka or something by himself, and then Lennon, I'm not sure, would have ever gotten his act together to to pull it all together and make a pop hit. But a you, little bit of offense that Neil Sedaka thing. <laughs> well, I mean, I know, I know that <laughs> McCartney got as grungy as uh, Lennon did. He had to work at it, though. Uh, when McCartney was being grungy, had nice, clean clothes on. He did not. He he had the voice, and he could do whatever he wanted with the voice. But his mind wasn't there. I mean, okay. McCartney was a was a disciplined pop no, song and, artist. And, 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 and you put him with Lennon, and you get a magic... Uh, I don't. I don't think Lennon could have gotten off the couch. No, I think, I think you're right. That and and McCartney was the more accomplished musician. And there's a lot of similarities there between Alex Chilton and and uh, Chris Bell. I mean, Chris Bell was. I mean, the, it would be ridiculous yeah, to take Chris it too Bell's far, dad. right? But Chilton, uh, as history has pointed out, I mean, they were both very troubled and mm-hmm. very. Uh, fundamentally flawed human beings. Yeah, but we'll talk Chil- about that after this. But Chilton was uh, always had kind of a self-destructive streak in terms of his own career. Yeah, um, yeah. which well, is strange. I, yeah, I mean, I'm such a happy, normal person. It's hard for me to understand all these other guys. The next song is "Give Me Another Chance." This is a great tune. Um, 
This is my second favorite song on the album. This it, is my favorite song on the album when it comes up until the next song comes up. <laughs> You're uh, like I am with Bend and Fleece. Yeah. This yeah. is uh this song also is another uh, incredibly achingly beautiful song oh, that'll yeah, make you yes. what jam. It'll make you boohoo. And the the Mellotron work on it oh, is it's so unbelievable. Great. It is. Um, Terry Manning, who is a friend I'm of I'm guessing theirs, that's plays, yeah. that's who plays the Mellotron. And he's the guy who he's the associate engineer on yeah, this album. Yeah. And uh but do you kind of wonder about the girl listening to this? Cuz I'd say uh, I'm not going to go for that. I don't know. Uh, when you get to the bridge part where he gets the it's so hard just to stay alive each day, uh, if you listen to that and it doesn't give you goosebumps or make you just want to put your head down and start sobbing, you got no soul. Yeah, it you is no just soul. it is. This is in a in a strange way. This is like a sensitive guy album. It's the it's the guy album where we don't want to admit that this is how we feel, but. He does a pretty good job of like hitting that angst in your. I'm not. I'm in my mid fifties now, but um, you can still be angsty. Yeah. When you're Look just at Morrissey. That. He's I think 93 and he's full of angst. <laughs> I um in preparation for this, I um listened to another group of people discuss this album on a podcast, um and one of them uh had a real issue with the way these lyrics paint this guy as being sensitive without having any real emotion. And I was, I was running when I was listening to this and I was just screaming at the, I was with my wife running around the track and she goes, what is wrong with you? I was, I was so, um, it was driving me nuts listening to this because these people did not get it, um, on a very basic level. Again, I don't, that one part, I mean, the whole song is unbelievably fractured and and tortured sounding but in a in a in a way in a beautiful way if that makes any sense yeah but that one point at the bridge where he sings that and then and then yeah. the background vocals kick in the mellotron oh, kicks God, the yeah. strings up uh, yeah. it's and then it's all it is oh. is just the mellotron for a while yeah you know, there's, and it's just it's no, it's it's pretty it's pretty remarkable. This is a fantastic. You know, and song. had they put actual strings behind it, I think that just would have taken away from it. I think it would have been right. too syrupy. I think I think yeah. the mellotron, as we've talked about this before, there's something outside of that outside of that um, Springsteen song. A mellotron has a bit of a. It sounds a bit false. There's a falseness to it that it sounds bend in the mellotron. Yeah. Well, yeah. it sounds warbly, which yeah. I actually kind of like. No, I do too, but it, it has its place. But, but Tony's but. right. All right. Well, that's we all uh, we all are very sensitive and like that song quite a bit. Yeah, so <laughs> then here we got and then we got another so the next one is kind of a uh Alec, you know, Bell, Chris Bell's version sort of, version of yeah. this song. Yeah. And uh they're right next to each other. We got try again. Yeah. 
Yeah, this, this song was uh, was another Rock City song, and even the early set, the early version of this has both Chilton and Bell's vocals on it. Um, so that, from the get go, this was a song that um, Chris Bell wanted. He knew Chilton was going to be a part of. I'll tell you the thing that impresses me, and I'm easily impressed by stuff because I'm not a musician. Is there's some pretty nifty slide guitar work from Alex. Well, Chilton that's what. Yes, yeah, so I've got that in my notes. It almost sounds like a George Harrison slide guitar work. And then when they do the harmonies, especially yeah, with that, let's, let's not let's not assume that was unintentional. <laughs> <laughs> I'm who's sure playing, it was. Who's playing slide guitar? Alex Chilton. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I guess he did work while he was up in New York. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's another heart wrenching sort of plea for forgiveness, just like the other one is. Yeah. And then we got watch watch the sunrise. bled into watch, watch the sunrise yeah and i i don't think i'm I, I listened really closely today when i was listening to it and i don't think that they're i think they let the the song try again ring out hmm. into uh watch the sunrise maybe I and it's got this that. really cool it's another acoustic guitar workout is it and, a 12 string yeah it's a 12 string and i believe it's a uh, open tuning 12 string on it. This song is so uplifting that Ugh. it's almost, uh, you know, we talked at the, on the Springsteen podcast about getting musical whiplash from a song. This yeah. song is so uplifting compared to everything else <laughs> on this album. It's like, where did this come from? Um, oh, it's beautiful. It's so positive. Um, but this song, I feel like this song is absolutely perfect. There's, uh, it's hard for me to find anything. Oh, uh, it's hard for me to find oh, anything then, wrong with this album in general. But yeah, um, but just the in it, the way the song is arranged when it's got that nice little kick, the kick drum comes in with a, a tambourine. I'm just like, God, this well, is just great. And and I'm happy you mentioned the drumming because you know Jody Stevens talks about how um, you know he didn't write any of the music or whatever, but all the bass and drum parts were worked out while they were working these songs out live yeah. in the studio. And he was so excited to be able to be able to create these things. And the drum drumming on this album is very good. Oh, yeah. I love it the drumming. Is. It's very subtle and it's not overbearing, but it's not it, like. It does what a drum yeah. is supposed it's, to yeah, do. It's, it's yeah. supposed exactly. to support and not get in the way. Yeah. Again, it's a Ringo Starr type drumming. Well, and he idolized Ringo. Yeah. Um, so we all. <laughs> Peace and love. <laughs> um, yeah, this. Uh, I jokingly said every every song becomes my favorite one, but I think if someone were to put a gun to my head and say, what's your favorite song in this album? It'd be hard for me not to say this song. I love the song. I love, and this is a perfect song to be driving down the street with your windows down and it just playing at the top of a top of uh, top volume. Yeah. Well, um, ST 100 forward slash six. Love me 
So, uh, I mean, for all intents and purposes, Watch the Sunrise is the last song on this album, right? This is like uh, Her Majesty. Oh, God, I can't believe you said that. I was going to say that. So, the Beatles end all of their recording together with the end. And Paul McCartney has to jump on and play Her Majesty. Like, uh, that's yeah, not so, what we're talking about. No, we're talking about, about this song. So this song, this song. ST100 forward yeah, slash and, 6. And the, the story is that that was a number that was given to this fictionalized bootleg name for this album because it took so long for this album to come out, not just because of the way they were recording it, by going in the studio at odd times and, and at night, but also because the mastering and everything else just took forever. That this uh, they just decided as an inside joke, I think, to add this as the title of the song. Um, they said well, by by the time this album comes out, someone will already already have bootlegged it under this name. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, so yeah, it's a real quick. It's only a minute long, and um, it's and there's some nice harmony vocals in it. But it yeah, you can just kind of and it, it sounds really nice. But it's just yeah, just kind of uh, it's like why the hell is this watch, here? Watch your great. Great movie, and it's time to go to bed. But they want to watch it like a little funny YouTube yeah. video before, because <laughs> they just watch this heavy, beautiful movie. Yeah. Oh, I'll just watch this little that's funny a, YouTube a, video with the point. dog chasing a cat or something. But yeah. I think, um, I, you know, I, I think when Watch the Sunrise kind of pulls you out of that a little bit to the extent it can. I mean, you've been hit over the head with, yeah. and I shouldn't say hit over the head. You've been, you've been listening to songs that are, you know all about your the fractured human condition and then, <laughs> and then you, they, they try to say but there's this yeah. watch the sunrise watch the it'll sunrise. all be okay yeah. and then this kind of fades out but um yeah yeah this uh this album to me is pretty remarkable uh it's I do love their second album, but I don't think is and 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 September Girls off their second album is probably their most accessible song. Probably, it's probably most my six, favorite song, by but I don't think it holds well, a candle to anything on this album. Do us a favor, Tony, because um, this remarkable album comes out. Yeah, basically, it's two very good singers and songwriters. Yeah, with, with a very talented backing band, and then. It comes apart. And can you tell us about the coming apart part? Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, it sold initially sold 10,000 copies. Um, there's this kind of weird spiral um, where um, the uh, promotions guy would call radio stations to try to get this, the, the single played. But um, the album wasn't selling. So they would say, well, the album, we're not getting any sales figures from the album. Why would we play the song? So it was just kind of this, this circular thing where... Um, if you it they weren't getting airplay, but in the places where they did, like in North Carolina, um, you couldn't find the album. Chris Stamey on the documentary, Chris Stamey from the DBs on the documentary says that he went into the went to the records, I mean the radio station, and bought all their demo copies. I so saw that. Yeah. He obviously couldn't find it. Is and he said it was number twenty. Watch or um um. In well, Babies area. Beside Me was number 20 in his area, but he couldn't find the album. He had to go to the radio station and buy all the demo copies. So they so, couldn't play it anymore. Yeah, and he said he, yeah, jokingly said he probably <laughs> ruined their career. And what was it Salem, Winston, North Carolina? Is that? Um, anyway, Chris Bell, who poured his heart and soul into this album and who um, probably in hindsight um, 
believed it was going to be bigger than it probably would have been even if they got airplay was devastated by the fact that they got these amazing reviews all over the country from these rock critics and magazine critics and the sales just tanked uh, or were non-existent and 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 the and we talked briefly about that it was a distribution issue with Columbia and Stacks and there just wasn't there wasn't the the all good intentions but they all went nowhere uh so Chris Bell who likely suffered from depression anyway um goes into a deep spiral in fact at one point um john fry who is the studio guy who who opened ardent gets a call one night i don't remember who from but uh that chris bell is in the studio erasing the master tapes for this album you know um and one of the things that bothered him i think in the long run or maybe the short run was that alex chilton was getting all the credit for this when he was, you know, again, not to pull one person above the other one, but Chris Bell was the visionary behind this. Yeah. But he, it makes, he was the guy that started the band. I know, it was his but, idea. But it makes do sense, it. doesn't it? Alex Chilton is this guy that everybody's heard of. He was in a band that had this monster hit. Why wouldn't you talk about it? Yeah. Um, and, he, and Alex Chilton doesn't strike me as the type of guy that would be too concerned about correcting the record. And I don't mean that that he was a jerk, but just like he didn't care one way or another. He's just like, whatever. Yeah. You know, it, it, we talked. Well, how, how old is everybody? No, they're young. But uh, the other thing that I think is an obvious thing to me um, is that he had a, Alex Chilton has a little Graham Parsons going on in the sense that he didn't need he, he had enough money from the letter. He didn't need to be doing this stuff. So yeah. it's, he, he's sort of playing to a certain extent. He has the talent to where his playing is better than some his fooling around is better than somebody who's serious, just like Graham Parsons. But there's a there's a. Uh, this lack of uh, consistency and wanting to really put the effort into it that I think, uh, you know, someone like Chris Bell, who this was his whole, this was his thing. Yeah. We, we might need to just give kind of a epilogue to what happened to all these guys. I mean, Chris Bell put out, I am the cosmos, which was, I think it's a pretty good album. I like yeah, it. Yeah. Um, the single on it. I mean, the, the title track, I'm the cosmos is great. I think, the B Something side, like you, you and your sister yeah. is, is in my opinion, even better. And Alex Chilton's on that one. Yeah. Um, you know, the interesting thing about that was when Chris Bell spiraled out of control, um, his brother, who was, I don't know what his brother did. I should know, but he traveled overseas. He was, he was visiting Memphis and, uh, his dad picks him up from the airport and says, you know, we've had some issues with your brother. Um, I think he tried to kill himself. And then his and then he, Chris Bell's brother sees him shooting up something, and he says, "I got to get this guy out of here." So he takes him overseas. He actually gets him into that uh, Chateau de Horville place where you know Elton John recorded and Jethro Tull recorded, and they lay down some tracks. And the guy, um, the engineer working on the album, knows Jeff Emmerich, who's working in Air Studios, which was where George Martin from the Beatles opened the studio. So they go in there. He, he gets him the guy in this in this. Um, in this studio in Paris, uh, gets them some time in air studios with Jeff Emmerich. And while he's there, um, mixing down some of the songs, the acetate for juniors farm by McCartney comes in and they realize McCartney is going to be coming into the studio the next day. So Chris Bell actually gets to spend 20 minutes with Paul McCartney, which you can imagine yeah. for someone that's as big of a Beatles fan as that, um, had to have been pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he comes home, uh, 
nothing really happens from any of that stuff. Uh, the weird thing is Big Star gets this bizarre cult following where it's not just people who want to listen to them and spread the word. They actively seek out the members of the band. <laughs> so the DBs, the guys in the BBs, DBs, Chris Stamey, Will Rigby, I think was the other guy. I want to say Mitch Easter might have been with them, too, from Let's Active. I can't remember. But anyway, they go down to Memphis and seek out Alex Chilton. Um, and then it, later on, they seek out Chris Bell. And Chris Stamey actually convinces Chris Bell to let him produce the single for I Am The Cosmos and You And Your Sister. And, they re- and Chris Stamey releases it as a single for him. It doesn't, it doesn't do anything. Um, Chris Bell does end up finding religion later on in life and becoming fairly religious it doesn't and, change and through uh john fry yeah john fry was also that way they both sort of became born again uh it doesn't change his drug and drinking habits but he does have a different outlook on life the sad thing is when he's 27 years old he's driving home from the studio he is not intoxicated or under the influence or anything his car clips the curb driving home and he crashes head onto a light pole and he dies instantly um, and the, and he's buried the next day, which is just happens to be Alex Shilton's birthday. Yeah. Alex Shilton doesn't show up to the funeral, which is, uh, you know, I'm, that's not, te- well, I'm not I don't we mean go, to, so we, and let's also go, Alex Shilton had his demons too. He no, had, no, no. And I'm not going to cost ca- cast any aspersions on him. Cause yeah. I mean, who knows what he was going through at the time when you find out this guy you worked with. Um, and you're close to dies. I mean, I'm not going to say anything. Not, just, I mean, I'm not going to JMs, you know. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so so that happens, and it, it's a blow to everybody. Um, the remaining guys in Big Star end up having a little bit of fame after this. Um, yeah, they do the second album, and it's pretty good. And then they well, before, before they, they do the third before album. they do the second album, this guy named John King who was. Uh, who was a promotions guy for Arden decides he, since the rock critics had a little bit of a, of a love for big star, maybe they would have a love for other Arden artists. So he decides he's going to have this rock writers organization where he's going to under the, under the idea that he's going to unionize them. He's going to get them to come down to Memphis and he's going to, and it'll end with a party where they're playing some current Arden artists. And so he reaches out to all these rock critics. He's they're paying, they're footing the bill to fly these guys down and stay in this hotel. And uh, all these people keep asking, "Is Big Star going to play?" Because that's what they know about Arden. Big Star's on Arden. So uh, John King asks the remaining guys if they'll get back together and play, and they do. And um, all these stoned and drunk rock critics just fall all over themselves when they see big star perform. And so that's when they're convinced to go in and record their second album, radio city. And, uh, and that's just the three members without Chris Bell. Chris Bell's still alive at this point, but he has nothing to do with it. And then, uh, Andy Hummel leaves, goes to college and becomes uh, an engineer and ends up moving to Fort worth, Texas. Working Which for is why we're in, uh, experts on this works for general dynamics <laughs> in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, and, uh, and the third album is recorded by, with a bunch of session musicians and Jody Stevens and, and, um, Alex Chilton. That's a tough album to listen to. Yeah. So Alex Chilton spent after this, spent some time in and out of mental institutions. Uh, he actually wrote an album about his time, that mental institution that came out around 2000. Yeah, so. that sounds right. Uh, he was in New Orleans. Yeah. 
and he that's where he went into cardiac arrest. And his he was living really close to of all people Ray Davies at the time. Ray Davies was in an apartment close to him, and he actually Ray Davies was one of the last people to see him alive. And he uh, just went into the hospital complaining of chest pains, and he he died pretty soon after that. Yeah, you know, Chilton, uh, his career was odd. He um, he did these things that could, for lack of a better term, be considered performance art that um, he wanted to be taken seriously. But when you watch these videos of him performing on these shows, you're like, what? This yeah. guy was a mess. Yeah. Um, he toured with the replacements for a little while, but they couldn't get him. He couldn't get his act together to really do that. Those guys loved him. And really wanted to help. That's why they recorded at Ardent Studio. Yeah, there's there was a group of young bands that really had a vested interest in trying to help Alex Alex Chilton out. He there was a point where he was busking on the street. I mean, he was broke. He was broke. He'd gone through all this, and he was just he just self destructive. And this guy was a hero to them, and they wanted to do what they could to help him you know, get his career back. Alex Chilton died in 2010 and Andy Hummel died shortly fairly there, soon okay. after that. From the but um, Jody Stevens, as far as I know, is still working at yeah, Arden. Jody Stevens is still there. He's actually carrying on the ardent tradition. And uh, John Fry died as well. John Fry died in 2014. That's brings us to the end. And uh, nothing it's like not, the last 15 minutes talking about people dying to, uh, Really, to really make it fun, and I, ho- I hope those of you that stayed on till the very end to hear us talk about everybody dying enjo- enjoyed that part. Um, Tony, <laughs> on a scale from one to five, yeah, how would you rate this as a critic? Not how much you like it. Uh-huh. How would you rate it as a critic? Uh, well, I'm going to pull a Doug, Little Feet Doug thing. I would give this album a five. And then doing the second thing that we talked about, which is to... How much do you like this album? Five. Okay, that was uh, me on Bruce Springsteen, actually. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. I apologize. (laughs) Springsteen, I would give it a five. I would give this a five for both. All right. And uh, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, our humble producer. Uh, I'm going to agree with Tony. I think it's a five as a critic. I don't... It's practically... Flawless as as far as its execution and, uh, you know, you could maybe knock some things off for the lyrics, but um, still it's just it's all a, nitpicking, right? Yeah, it's, it's just getting seri- silly trying to, to do that. But this is a, one of the albums that I listen to the most. Okay. And this is uh, Doug Cooper, your non-humble host. And um, I'm, g- I'm going to give the album critically. 4.8, I think it's an excellent album. 4.8 is is excellent in my book. And um, I'm going to give it a a 4.1 uh, for how much I like it. And uh, it doesn't have any blues in it. So um, I'm a lyrics guy, and I'll just end it right there and, and say, Tony, what do you have for the kids tonight? Well, I, uh, I'm going to recommend a, a brand new album by um, somebody we've talked about briefly tonight, and that's Chris Stamey and Peter Sapple from the DBs. 
Um, they got together a couple of decades ago, I think, and put out an album of acoustic <clears throat> songs called Mavericks. That is, you check it out; it's fantastic. But they just recently released on vinyl for Record Store Day this year. And it's also available on uh, through Omnivore Records, at least on CD. It may still be available on 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 album or vinyl as well. This album called um, "Our Back Pages" and it's Peter Holsapple and Chris Stamey. Song. So what they would do when they get together in the studio to do stuff or do stuff live is they would go through old DB songs and do acoustic versions of them. So while this isn't an album like we normally talk about in terms of being something that. You know, someone sat down and had as a story. It is an, a collection of their reinterpretations of these DB's songs, and it's it's really fantastic. Um, the uh, you know, if you're a fan of the DB's, you'll like it. If you're a fan of just this type of music, you should like it. Um, I I I was while I was a fan of the DB's early stuff, I really really got into the later stuff after actually after Chris Stamey left when Holesapple was the primary leader of the band. Um, they put out an album called um, Sound of Music, which is one of my favorite albums from the '80s. And there's a couple of tracks off this from that album. Uh, Today could be the day is one of them. Molly says, which is fantastic. So I hung up the phone because I don't want to hear what. And then there's some classic DB stuff like Dynamite, um, Black and White. Uh, it's 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 worth checking out. Omnivore Records. Um, it's under the name, I believe the name is Whole Sapple and Stamey. And the album's called Our Back Pages. All right, Tapsters, that's it for tonight's show. Next week, we'll be looking at an album by Amy Lou Harris, produced by Daniel Lanois. Wrecking Ball. Remember, we're on Facebook and Instagram, and we're on Gmail, tappingvinyl at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at Tapping Vinyl. On behalf of your host, Doug Cooper, your co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, this is Vinyl Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11. And please don't forget to watch the sunrise. <laughs>